invite you to turn with me to Psalm 33. Uh, the book of Psalms is replete with so many wonderful, uh, wonderful teachings and opportunities to really think about what worship means but I want to use this passage to help us in a particular area of worship today and that is in the area of thanksgiving and most especially in reference to our nation and so I'm going to invite you to stand as we receive this and may we honor God's word as we read it from Psalm 33 beginning here with verse 1. It says, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. May God add his blessing to that word. You can be seated. As I mentioned a moment ago, uh, we're beginning a new series of messages that I'm going to see how far we get through during the summer, but I'm going to simply call this Hot Topics. And I want to spend some time with you over these next several weeks when I'm in the pulpit to talk about biblical concerns as we discuss what is happening today in our culture. There are a lot of things in our modern age that, that sometimes as Christians we, we need clarity on in terms of what it is that the Bible teaches. How are we to view this? How are we to respond and react? And so over the next several weeks, we're going to deal with some of these issues, uh, sexual identity and gender and pronouns. That's something I never imagined uh, early on in my ministry I would ever conceive of addressing. But here we are. So I invite you to join me as we begin to investigate a biblical worldview concerning these issues. But this morning, uh, this may in fact be a hot topic as well because I am thankful for my country. In spite of all of its flaws, 
there are many, many good things that we should give God thanks for. Now, I wasn't here last weekend. It might have been more appropriate to preach last Sunday uh, a message like this, but we indeed have been blessed and enjoy the blessings of living in the United States of America. Now, the truth is some pastors are hesitant to talk about honoring our country and its heritage. They fear that we would we'd slip into worshiping our country instead of worshiping God. And the truth is, that can be a danger. I've seen that happen. But I would also submit to you, it is not idolatry to give God thanks for the privilege of living in our nation on July 4th, for instance, any more than it's idolatry to give thanks for your mom on Mother's Day. The Bible says, in everything, give thanks. So we are thankful that we've been born again into his kingdom by God's grace. And as a children of that kingdom, we can be thankful for the freedoms we enjoy as citizens of a country that he has placed us in. The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so when God gives a good gift, it is right and proper to be thankful a little boy fell off a pier into shark-infested ocean waters below. Of course, his mother was frantic and, 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 and cried out in desperation. Well, a complete stranger saw what was going on. He dove into the water. He found the boy, and he pulled him out to safety. The mother went over to the boy and embraced him and finally came over to the man who had saved him and said, Mister, he had a hat. I want you to think about the absurdity of that story. Let's not be like that this morning. It is good and proper when we consider the freedoms that we do have in our country to give God thanks because not everyone in history has had this privilege. Psalm 33, 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen for his inheritance. You know, one of the reasons I guess I'm thankful for this country, one of the reasons I, I love this country, and I love history, and I love to read about our history, but I am thankful this morning that our founding principles were based, in fact, on a biblical worldview. There was an established nation that was unparalleled and unique in human history. John Adams, who was, of course, our second president, said this. He said the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. In Psalm 27, 1, the Bible says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor in vain, they labor in vain that build it. Now, of course, you know this. Our founding fathers were not perfect men. They were products of their age. They had severe prejudices. But they sought to see the world through a biblical lens. That was what they experienced. That is what they had come to know. They, they, they had read the Bible. They understood the Bible. They wanted to, to see what it would look like to actually live that out. And while these principles were laid out, they often failed to live them out. It's true. But these spiritual principles eventually allowed a nation like ours to see the grievous nature of slavery and to fight against the evils of Jim Crow. 
It's these principles that guided us and guides us even now to see the unfair treatment of a justice system or call us to confront the haunting sin and genocide of abortion. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Robert pointed out it all begins with life. Now, we see some of these principles laid out in our founding documents. Consider the Declaration of Independence. These principles outlined here have allowed us to endure and prosper. Now, I warn you right ahead of time here. Sit up, uh, take the cobwebs out of your mind because when our forefathers wrote these words, they were not concerned about 280 characters and tweet or something. They were serious about this and you have to follow and think. But here's the opening paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. Some of you have read this since eighth grade. But when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the law of nature and of nature's God entitled them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. Now, in other words, what they were saying there is, we're going to explain to you why we're declaring independence from Great Britain. It's because we have God-given rights that are being violated. And I want you to see with me three sound principles that are established in that declaration. The first is this. This is profound. Government, they knew, got its authority from God. Our founders understood that government gets its authority first and foremost from God. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, first I would just have you note that they acknowledged there is a God. And then they said, he is sovereign over us and God created every person with equality and certain innate rights. In other words, government doesn't give us rights. God gives us rights. God does that. So authority, all authority, begins and ends with him. Our founders, therefore, had the audacity to assert that the king of England had usurped those rights, which he had no right to do. And so the king's authority was not simply inherited from his father, but the king's authority ultimately came from God. And when he was not following that established authority of God, that's when they decided they needed to uh, hold him accountable and separate themselves from him. Now, of course, they were right. Verse 16 says, no king is saved by the size of his army. A horse is a vain hope of deliverance. In other words, kings don't stand a chance if they're not submitted to God. In Daniel chapter 2, it says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons, and he sets up kings and deposes them. So it is God who sets up kings. It is God who determines their day is over. Now here's a second principle from that document. 
Not only is government get its authority from God, but government is accountable to the people. They said that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So after God, they established, came the people. And after people came the government. And only after the people's consent do government officials rule. Now, we take this kind of for granted today. But in fact, in history, this was turning the world upside down. It was a, a radical new view. But our forefathers determined that we would be a government, government not ruled by kings, but people ruled by laws, laws made by the people's representatives. So we'd be a government of the people and by the people and for the people. And so we would the most capable people among us to represent us and to write uh, and interpret and then enforce laws for us. Now, I don't know about you, but that's rather sobering to think about because that says something about us, the people. We established the Constitution with these words. We, the people. Verse 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the people of the world revere him. John Adams, again, second president, very important founding father said, listen guys, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Do you see there's a danger? If the people don't revere God if the people are not seeking after God if the people are not people of faith in God things can fall apart rather quickly and when the people falter guess what well they start electing people who shouldn't be in office they start allowing for laws that are unjust they allow for people to take offices who are corrupt. And I'm speaking on the right and on the left. I have determined and noticed this for years now. Folks, we get the leaders we deserve. That's sobering. But for reflection, I'm sorry, my microphone seems to be going out. Maybe we'll just use this one, Adam. But they are... They are a reflection of us. And that is, meaning to me at least, we're in a rather scary time. The third principle that I see in the Declaration and I want to outline for you is this. The government, in fact, is very capable of horrendous evil and must be restrained. That whenever, the Declaration says, any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter and abolish it and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Verse 5 says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of of his unfailing love. 
Now, the next few sentences in the Declaration outline the fact that no one should overthrow the government lightly because there is no perfect government. But the founders, in fact, argued we've suffered from this unreasonable despot long enough, and when people suffer a, quote, train of abuses, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government and to provide new guards for their future security, unquote. You see, our founding fathers believed in the sinful nature of humanity. They knew we were fallen. They knew we were broken. They saw how power had corrupted King George. They believed that government is not to be trusted with unlimited power. But at the same time, they acknowledged the danger of pure democracy because people could be selfish or people could be ignorant and not really know the issues. Way back in the 18th century, Alexander Fraser Titler made this very foreboding observation. He said, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the people discover they can vote for themselves, largesse, out of the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidate promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that democracy always collapses over a loose fiscal policy to be followed by a dictatorship. Now that is scary and prophetic. As we uh, continue in our own nation to slip into this view of socialism, I hear Margaret Thatcher's words. She said, you know, the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of everyone else's money. We are $33 trillion in debt. Maybe 34, it may have changed. That's on us. That's what we've done. Now, that's why the founders established states' rights, and they thought there was wisdom in the Electoral College, and they put in checks and balances in the Constitution with, with the House of Representatives and the Senate and the Supreme Court and the executive. Their intent was, we're going to have representatives who can work to be informed and work together and, and at times compromise and seek to do what's best for the people. J. 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 Vernon McGee, who was a pastor of another time and place, said one time, sometimes majority opinion just means you've got a lot of fools in one place. <laughs> so, so our founder's intent was to protect us from that. We, the people would elect representatives who would, who would look at the issues and study them and think about the implications and work together come up with solutions. So a few years after the Declaration of Independence, they met to form a new government in the Constitutional Convention, and they developed a constitutional republic in which though there were those checks and balances, devices to stop a tyrant in his tracks, promote general order and justice, and the opportunity then for all of the people to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. 
They even put the Bill of Rights right there in the Constitution from the moment we had it because they believed that they were so important and already needed to be assumed as given by God as part of our nation. I believe because of those founding principles and a desire then from the very beginning to be a shining city on a hill that God has given us grace for much of its history. The United States has indeed experienced a great deal of blessing and favor. It is part of our heritage that our motto is, in God we trust. It's why in our pledge we recite, and when we recite it, we say that we are one nation under God. The motto of the state of Ohio, Robert pointed this out, talks about, or is, is actually quoting Jesus himself. With God, all things are possible. And for decades and decades, for so many generations, that wasn't just sentimentality. But for generations of Americans, that was the way we saw ourselves. God promised, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That is why you and I are responsible for our nation. Because ultimately, this is a government of we, the people. You are the government. You have a responsibility to be a good steward of what God has entrusted to you so that you can, can pass this on to another generation. And friends, we will be held accountable for the character of the people we vote for, for the policies we push, and the legacy of faith we leave behind. Now, there is another reason I'm thankful for our nation this morning. And, and I would argue you can see this time and time and time again. But again and again, our nation has indeed experienced God's favor. Now, I will concede America has never been a perfect nation. It is not so today. But it was a nation at its foundation intent to honor God and see his kingdom up there come down here. And God kept his promise to bless that nation whose God is the Lord. The concluding sentence of the declaration reads, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. Years ago, I picked up a book by Michael Medved. He's an Orthodox Jew, as a matter of fact, but the book was titled The American Miracle, Divine Providence in the Rise of the Republic. And in that book, he recounts several incidences. In fact, he calls them miracles, and I would agree, that cannot be dismissed as simply coincidence. I'll just give you a couple of these that, that I think are significant. For instance, uh, you, you remember that George Washington was asked to lead the Continental Army in the American Revolution. Washington later confided to his military aide, Joseph Reed, that he would have never accepted the command if he really understood how much of a ragtag, undisciplined group the American Army was at that time because it put them and him in so much peril. He later added, quote, if we prevail, it'll only be because we're involved, we've involved the intervention of a higher power. 
He said, quote, I shall most religiously believe if we prevail that the finger of providence is in it to blind the eyes of our enemies. Well, just several months into the war, Washington had 9,000 troops trying to defend New York City. And they got trapped on Long Island because the greatest military force in the world at the time, the British, had 20,000 troops with their artillery poised to take the city, about to attack. The Continental Army was trapped at the East River. It was a, a mile across the river. And so British ships were in the harbor, ready to sail up the river. Two ships that with 72 cannons would have added no hope of escape. In fact, the Revolutionary War would have ended right then and there, and we would all be speaking English today if, uh, if they had won. Oh, wait a minute, we are speaking English, but you kind of know what I mean, right? It's a little joke to wake you up, okay? But it just so happened, it just so happened that a fierce hurricane-force wind began to blow before the British attack. The ships could not sail up the harbor. General Howe decided, therefore, to, to, to delay it. Washington saw his chance for his men to get to the other side of the East River, survive, and fight another day. And so that night, many men began to cross in the darkness, but many did not. It just wasn't enough time. And so when dawn broke, Washington knew now his army is divided, and when the British saw what they were doing, they would be in severe trouble. But it just so happened that when the wind died down, a dense fog settled over the area. So dawn broke, one soldier said, you could not see six feet in front of your face. And strangely, the river became as smooth as glass and they were able under this window of fog to get every one of those soldiers across. One Connecticut soldier said that he took 11 trips across the river that night, but strangely, on the other side of the river, there was no fog at all, and it was easy to disembark, turn around, and come back again. Not one soldier's life was lost. David McCullough, that's a name you should know if you like to read history at all, he remarked in one of his books, incredibly, yet again, circumstances, fate, luck, providence, the hand of God, as it would be so often said, intervened. George Washington, in his first inaugural address, said as much. He said, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. Now, there are many, many other stories that could be told. Not coincidences, but I, I like to refer to them as God incidences. When God just shows up, does something. You know, I, I think of the fact that we had Abraham Lincoln take the mantle of leadership during the deepest, darkest travail of our nation's history as we face the tragedy and, yes, judgment of the Civil War. I believe it was a gift. The victory at Gettysburg, which led to Lincoln's signing of the Emancipation Proclamation to end slavery. Read about that sometime. The invasion of Normandy in World War II. 
It was at that invasion on D-Day that the President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, offered a prayer to the nation and on behalf of the nation over the radio where everyone who wasn't in church at that moment praying, he prayed this prayer, Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation this day, have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts. And then he said, Thy will be done, Almighty God. Amen. I was the President of the United States leading the nation in prayer. Even Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Earl Warren, you remember that name? Those of you who've been around a while will reflect on the fact that the Warren Court, maybe there was never a more liberal court than ever in history. But he wrote in 1954, I believe that no one can read the history of our country without realizing that the good book and the spirit of the Savior have from the beginning been our guiding geniuses. That was Earl Warren. Now here we are today. You know, our nation is horribly divided right now. I don't have to tell you that. On the right and on the left, truth is distorted. Elections disputed. Justice demeaned. And faith derided. There's so much incivility and anger. Jesus himself told us a house divided against itself cannot stand. And then I think, and I do it with not a little intrepidation, soon we are entering into a political campaign that many are predicting <laughs> going to be the nastiest ever. I don't know about you, but I almost dread it. Polls clearly show that the majority of Americans wish that the two leading presidential party candidates would not even run, and yet they both are most likely to win their party's nomination. And as a result, I've seen some Christian leaders that I respect suggest that our current chaos is an indication that God has now given up on America. He's finished. And let's face it, in our last 50 years, what have we become? Where have we gone? What are we doing? Well, we've turned our back on him. And yes, we've rejected him. And we're trying to go it alone. And so here we are. It is true, the same God who said, blessed is the nation, whose God is the Lord, is also the God who declared the wicked will be cast into hell and all nations that forget God. So some say we're finished. But I'm preaching this morning, and I keep preaching because I still have hope. I believe in a God of miracles. You see, I know our history. You know he gave us one great awakening, and then he gave us a second great awakening. If you know your history, wouldn't it be just like God? 
to show up and give us a third great awakening. How desperately we need that. I believe in a God who can do all things. I believe that nothing is impossible with our God. I think of the stories of old. I remember the story of the the Israelites trapped at the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is behind them. The Red Sea is before them. They're trapped. There's no way to go. And they panicked. And they cried out to Moses and said, We're done. We're finished. But God told Moses, Moses, you tell the people to stand firm and wait and see what I will do. And what happened? Well, that night, a fierce wind blew. And by morning, the Red Sea had parted, and they walked across on dry ground with a cloud behind them blocking the view of the Egyptians. Only God could do that. You see, what I want to report to you this morning is there is a solution to our problem. And yes, we have a responsibility as the people to vote, be concerned about what is happening, and influence to the degree that we can, absolutely. But our hope right now, our greatest hope, is to stand firm and trust God for the wind of his spirit to blow again in our nation, for him to work in a miraculous way, with a firm reliance on divine protection, to pledge our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor to that end. Because there is a God who did make this promise. He said, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now, I want you to notice something. If my people, who's his people? The church. See, I I believe there's a word that God wants to give his church this morning. We can complain all we want about the culture. Why should it surprise us that those who don't know God are going to live like that? What concerns me most is the people who purport to be his don't live accordingly. Half of evangelicals don't go to church more than once a month. Evangelicals, those are the people who say, I'm a Bible believer, I believe in Christ, but I don't want to bother with the church he died for. Maybe if we humble ourselves, if we seek his face, we turn from our wicked ways, there will be a healing in this land and the Holy Spirit will blow again. And I'm so thankful that we have a God who is willing to blow his spirit in our nation again. I'm thankful that at the name of Jesus, every tongue, every tribe, every nation will bow before him. Because he is still the king of kings. And he still may just allow for another great awakening in our day. But we need to pray. We stand firm by getting on our knees. We stand up by bowing before our God and saying, Lord, we need you. 
on behalf of me, my family, my church, and my country. Let's pray. O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. We come to you right now because our nation, I believe, is in peril. We are ensnared by our transgressions. Forgive us, Lord, for our ungrateful hearts and our blindness to the blessings. You said that a nation that was divided could not stand and now look at us. Would you, Lord, through your mercy and grace, work again a miracle, a mighty wind, or a mighty fog, or something, Lord, to humble us and heal us and unite us. So that in that near future, Lord, we pray that we'll be able to say with assurance, this is one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We pray, Lord, that we'd see it start here in our church that we would seek your face. We would humble ourselves. We would expect you to do what you only can do. In the strong name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.